for the week of January 28th, 2024, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 646, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news-making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And in birthday land, I'm Michael Giltz. Happy birthday to you. Happy, bir- <laughs> Happy birthday, Sperling. You didn't uh, know I well, knew it was you. your birthday. You thought I forgot. It's birthday time. Woo! Uh, uh, apparently, I forgot. Uh, and and uh, yeah, so it's my birthday. It's great to turn 21 again. It's been uh, now many years yeah, going. Yeah. I, I sent you a male stripper. You're going to, oh, wait, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll be doing this, so I can't answer the door. Sorry. Yeah, oh, well, oh, well. There you go. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. You came back from Sundance. You came back from fun, exhausting fun. And here you are doing a podcast on your birthday. That's how much you value your subscribers. That is true. And by subscribers, I mean, uh, you know, my, to my streaming service, really. <laughs> that's oh, yeah. And us. That's very us. funny. Yes. Have, have, you, uh, have you bought yourself anything? Because nobody knows what you want better than you. A little gift, I, a little something. I have not because I've been, you know, traveling. So I, I kind of uh, am just getting back on my feet after Sundance. Well, there you go. Well, two weeks ago, we had an episode and it was came out right before the Grammys aired. We recorded the it. Grammys the Grammys or the Emmys? No, the Emmys, the Emmys. Yeah. So we recorded it the, the day of the Emmys or the night before, I forget. But we boldly acted as if we knew the results and we were right up and down the line. We nailed it. And the cool thing is that Elton John became the 19th EGOT winner. He has five Grammys, an Oscar for Can You Feel the Love Tonight from The Lion King, it should have been for Circle of Life, and a Tony for Aida, not Billy Elliot, which is by far his best musical, but there you go. So that was cool. And 4.3 million viewers watched the Emmys in the overnights, which actually is more people than probably watched the big three winners in the overnights come streaming and all that. To be fair, they were playing opposite the NFL playoffs and the Iowa caucus results. They tried to avoid uh, all that, but the weather stymied them. So that was too bad. And next week, we have the Grammys. I I think we'll probably be recording before the Grammys take place. Joni Mitchell is a first-time performer, and Billy Joel is performing his first new pop song in years. So, Sperling, tell us, since we always know the results, who's going to win Album of the Year? The Beatles! What?! Oh, wait. Oh, they're not. Oh, wait. I'm looking at my list here. They're totally, they were totally overlooked. They were snubbed. Totally snubbed. Maybe they're available for like historical album for the red and blue releases. I don't know. Maybe that's for next year. I think it's next year because they're so far behind. So who's going to win album of the year? I I would love to see Boy Genius win for the record. You know, chances are it'll be a female act. Uh, it could be SZA, it could be Taylor Swift, it could be Olivia Rodrigo, but I think I think Boy Genius has a real sh- Of course, they have a shot, they're nominated. But that's where my money's going. I'm not a big bet, but I think you're right. But speaking of music, there was a political story this week. Trump, at his rallies, is playing music by the Smiths. The Morrissey, Johnny Marr group, the Smiths. Does and- he know that band? Is he like... <laughs> I love the Smiths. They're my favorite group. <laughs> I mean, it's just Morrissey, of course, may not care. Most of the time, when far right people play music, the acts are like, don't play our music. Don't play Neil Young. Don't play Bruce. Whoever you play, they're like, for the love of God, stop playing my music. I don't want it associated with your politics. Morrissey may not care, but Johnny Marr was like, for the love of God, do not play our music. And all I could think of, what. M- Smith song could he possibly have been playing? What would possess them to play a Smith song? I found out the song he was playing is, this is true, 
Please, please, please let me get what I want. <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Unbelievable. Just, and if you look at the lyrics, you're like, wow, that's a weird song to choose. Uh, I, it's like, time. these are the times that can make a good man bad. <laughs> it's like, yeah, uh-huh. So anyway, when I thought about it, there's actually a lot of Smith songs that would be perfect for a Trump rally. These are all actual songs by the Smiths. They could have played at a Trump rally, Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now. <laughs> they could have played, That Joke Isn't Funny Anymore. They could have played, Last Night I Dreamed That Somebody Loved Me. But my favorite would be if they would play, Big Mouth Strikes Again. And the best part is, like, later, if he wins, he could say, I told you, you didn't listen to the Smith song. Good man, bad. <laughs> exactly. Dictator. Well, that's what we talked about two weeks ago. What are we going to talk about on this, your birthday podcast? Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, as you kind of referred to, Michael, we're, we're offering a supersized, bigger-than-ever episode chock-full of insight and commentary about the entertainment business that you won't find anywhere else. We Woo. cover the box office, we cover the Oscar nominations, and we cover Sundance because I was there. But wait, there's more. We also cover a wave of firings at newspapers and video game companies, the latest in union shop talk, and the latest in AI. And that's artificial intelligence for you keeping notes at home. Plus, a lot of people died. Yes. Michael's favorite subject. Yeah. (laughs) On Inside Baseball, we'll talk about Netflix because why not? Everybody else is. They announced quarterly earnings last week and had some big news to announce. And thanks to a piece in the New York Times by Peter Biskin, we have an analysis of the end of peak TV that is muddled and just plain wrong from top to bottom. <laughs> Michael read it. I did not. We'll find out. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz and also official Peter Biskin hater, apparently. He's going to fill us in on last week's box office. Hater is a strong word. I worked with him at Premier Magazine, and I helped fact check his book, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, which, of course, he gets all the credit for, but I was delighted to be uh, linked to that book because it's a great book. Uh, but I did take issue with his TV analysis. Anyway, we're looking at box office from around the world. We're the only people who total up the entire week's box office. And that's why we're the only people announcing that the number one movie around the world last week was The Beekeeper. That's where the buzz is. The Jason Statham film grossed $29 million last week. It's at $104 million and counting. Great news for that movie, as well as for the rom-com Anyone But You. $27 million this week. It grew again in worldwide box office. That really tells you word of mouth is off the chart. And it's at $127 million worldwide for a movie that only costs $25 million to make. It is a big success story, and you just know they're saying, yeah, maybe we should make rom-coms. We'll get to that when we get to Sundance, won't we? Yes, we will. That's right. Fighter is the movie that most people are pointing to because that was the top film of the weekend. Thursday through Sunday. Fighter is India's sort of top gun. It's a Hindi film, and it made $25 million in its worldwide opening week. A great start for that pretty big-budgeted movie. It costs $30 million to make, but it's well on its way, assuming word of mouth is good. Over in China, their top film is Johnny Keep Walking. Remember, these movies aren't competing with each other, so where they rank on the chart doesn't really matter because some of them are just beginning their box office reign and others are weak into it. In China, the workplace comedy, Johnny Keep Walking, made another $22 million. It's at $155 million worldwide and counting. 
I'm glad I figured that out, but it's hard to keep track of the Chinese box office lately. Uh, I don't know how much Johnny Keep Walking costs to make, and I don't have a good weekly source of the Chinese box office uh, that's available Sunday or Monday morning at the latest. If you know, tell us. Yes, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We actually have some voicemails that we're not going to play on this particular episode because it's so long it's, already. It's, it's so but, long. Yeah, but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll kind of gather them all together and uh, play them maybe on the next uh, episode. Uh, now, um, well, we, we're covering the Grammys next episode, no doubt. Uh, also, you can follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandboxes, where you can like our page. And we're also on twitter.com, which I refuse to call X. And uh, of course, uh, showbizsandbox is our handle there. Uh, stay strong, Sperlin. You just, you just, you just hold to your guns. Uh, the uh, Grammys are on Sunday night, so yeah, we will cover them next week. Uh, back to the charts. Wonka, another big success story. It looks like the first five films so far are big success stories. Wonka grossed another twenty million dollars. It's at five hundred and fifty million dollars worldwide. And then kudos to whoever gave director Yorgos Lanthimos thirty-five million dollars to make the very bold, unusual film. Poor Things, starring Emma Stone in a feminist reworking of the Frankenstein monster's myth. $17 million it made this week. It's at $51 million and counting. It is riding the wave of all those Oscar nominations. It's doing quite well all around the world. It needs to get to about $100 million. But with $17 million this week, a lot of Oscar attention. And the fact that even if they don't get there, they're going to get close. This looks like a valuable movie to add to your film library. So kudos to everybody who stepped up to the plate. That's a lot of money for a Yorgos Lanthimos film, and that gamble paid off. I don't think his next movie should get a $100 million budget. Maybe go back down to $15 million, but that's very cool to see. They gambled, and it paid off. Right below that is Mean Girls, the musical remake. Uh, that made $17 million this week. It's at $83 million and counting. Also a success story. Here's one that isn't. Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom made another $17 million. That's at $400 million and counting. It finally doubled its big budget of $200 million. Not a great result for a movie that's uh, not having the worst word of mouth, but it's not going to get, I don't know, it has much more uh, gas left in the tank. The animated film Migration is doing well. That made $14 million. It's going to triple its reported budget. It's at $206 million and counting. Then in India, we have a movie that we're catching up on. I'm getting very spotty results in India. The box office site I went to for Bollywood movies, it only covers Hindi films. That's not working great for me. And I'd love an overall chart for India. So see our note before about China. The new movie Hanuman. I hope I'm pronouncing that properly. It's sort of a superhero flick. Uh, it's in the Telugu language. It's from the Telugu film industry there. And it mixes up mythology, superhero, and contemporary film stuff. It looks very cool. It grossed, we don't know what it grossed. It's at $30 million total. We're going to pretend it made about $10 million this week. It had a great hold. I believe it opened up last week or the week before. We're catching up on it, just like we are with The Goldfinger, a film in China. Uh, that's a Hong Kong action flick. Andy Lau uncovers financial scandals. We lost track of it last week. So it's at $71 million and counting. And there's a movie that opened up in Japan. Don't have a great chart for them either. That takes days and days to update. Mobile Suit Gundam Seed Freedom. 
That is a Japanese animated film. It's been a manga and a TV series. And I think this is a film sequel. So if you've followed all the other stuff, you love this movie, you might be a little lost otherwise. But it opened up to $9 million. A lot of stuff are on the charts like The Holdovers. Holdovers got a lot of good Oscar nominations, as did American Fiction. Holdovers made $5 million this week. And American Fiction made $4 million this week. But I was annoyed. Because these Oscar movies came back into theaters. Some of them had barely even left. And Anatomy of Fall is back on the, uh, in the theaters here in Birmingham, Alabama. The Holdovers is there. And I thought, well, I'll go see Anatomy of a Fall, uh, the French film. But it's labeled as a fan fave. Meaning, even though I pay a $25 monthly fee to AMC, they want me to pay an extra five bucks to see this movie that's already available on streaming <laughs> and get me to go to the theater. It's like, why are you penalizing me? That drives me crazy, Sperling. I have no idea why, and I did make a note when you told me that to actually call them and ask since, hey, movie theaters are kind of my beat. So I will be calling AMC, uh, the largest theater chain in the world, and also uh, the largest theater chain in North America, certainly. And whatever Uh, the reason is, say, why don't you work something out so you don't have to charge your monthly subscribers an extra fee? I understand everybody else. You're trying to get them to see a movie that's already in their homes. Say, well, you only have to pay $5. But me, the guy who pays you the most money, you're telling me you got to pay extra. So it's kind of infuriating. Godzilla Minus One is back in theaters, but it's relamed. It's Godzilla Minus One Minus Color. (laughs) because they made a black and white version of it, uh, which you can't really do, so I don't support it. But it's supposed to look pretty cool. It made $4 million this week. It's now the third highest grossing international film in U.S. box office history. It's just behind, uh, oh, what's the Roberto Benigni movie? Life is Beautiful and the far superior Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. So that's very cool. Top grossing Japanese film of all time in North America and now third highest grossing. It could even pass... Uh, uh, life is beautiful. So we'll have to see where it ends up. Scrolling down, the Iron Claw did not get Oscar nominations, but it's doing pretty darn well. It's at $35 million worldwide. The Color Purple did not do well at the Oscars at all. That's slowing down. It's at $62 million worldwide. Maybe that didn't seem like a gamble, but $100 million is a lot of money. And it's not going to pay that back. Uh, scrolling down, the zone of interest is in theaters. Oppenheimer is back in theaters. That's at $957 million worldwide. Boy, I'd love to see that get over the billion dollar mark, but we're going to have to wait for a reissue next year or sometime down the road. Well, I think now they we are were, reissuing it in. Uh, well, it's in right now. Million. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's yeah. back right now. I'm just saying it's not going to get another 43 million this time around. Yeah, no. But we were talking about India, the Indian box office. That's doing great, isn't it? If you scroll down on our notes, you'll see that Indian box office hit a record, didn't they, Sperling? $147 billion, could you imagine? No, Woo! Yeah. <laughs> hey, congratulations, you topped, you're number one in the world. Uh, $1.47 billion. And, that, you know, by the way, ticket prices are up 22% over 2019. So, you know, it's not yeah. necessarily record admissions, but definitely record box office. Yeah, so it's a good sign, but you don't want to keep making more money by jacking up the prices. You want to make more money by getting people back into the seats. So they did that to a degree, but here's hoping admissions catch up and they don't keep raising the prices. That's a steep rise, 22%. Uh, But there you go. Bob Iger, he's doing okay. But his yeah. pay fell this year. He's, his fell dropped dramatically to $31 million. He's only going to make $31 million this year. Uh, I worry about him, and I worry about all these Oscar nominees back in theaters when I can't afford to go see him again. 
And they say the movie business is in turmoil. Exhibition is hurting, aren't they? But is it really? Well, here's the thing. So you kind of, I could have written these headlines back in September of last year when they started pushing Mm -hmm. all these movies. Uh, You know, January, always a slow month, by the way, for the most part, not always, but you know, certainly most of the time it's a slow month. People are going back to work after the holidays. And, you know, of course, with all the movies having shifted due to the strikes, uh, everybody's, oh, the the box office is going to be bad. The box office, and January was down. Well, of course it was down. Do you know why? Because they were comparing it to 2023, and they're like, it's down 12%. Yeah, well, last year, in 2023, you still had Avatar, The Way of Water, making $15 million a weekend for, like, you know, starting at the head of January. I mean, I think Avatar, The Way of Water, I wouldn't be shocked if it made $100 million in the month of January last year. So you had one of the world's highest grossing films in history out last January, yeah, right. you're going to be down. And we're down 11% right now. So is that 11% made up um, from the way of water? Maybe, perhaps. Right, release more movies and you'll have more box office. The box office is right where it should be based on the number of releases. It's, it's simple. If you only release 10 films, you're not going to make as much money as if you release 100 films. And right now, box office looks like it's trending down to about like 70 or 80% of where it was in 2019 because they're only releasing about 80% as many movies. So fewer movies typically will mean less box office, especially when you're talking about not an art film that only plays on one screen, but fewer big budget two or four quadrant movies that can really bring in audiences. And you really need a big mix, not just big budget movies, but medium size and smaller movies because they all help pay the bills. So yeah, but we do know that while we were gone, they had the Oscar nominations announced and everybody's seen them and seen some of the analysis. But tell us, Sperling, who are the 10 best picture nominees and who is going to win? American Fiction, Anatomy of a Fall, Barbie, The Holdovers, Killers of the Flower Moon, Maestro, or as my daughter likes to call it, Maestro, because she did not know how to pronounce Maestro, uh, Oppenheimer, Past Lives, Poor Things, and The Zone of Interest. And when I Mm. read those off, I think to myself, wow, there are a lot of good movies on that list. Uh, But the winner will be Oppenheimer, I believe. Yeah, best picture and best director. You can make an argument for other stuff, or maybe there'll be a backlash that puts Barbie over the top, and or Scorsese, and one more. You know, no, it's going to be Oppenheimer. <laughs> Everything points to it. It got every possible nomination. It could practically across the board. Every guild loved it. It's a huge commercial success, but a real roll of the dice uh, as well. So to make it a big commercial success is just such an accomplishment, just like Barbie. No doubt about it. So that's that. That's very cool to see. And there's been a lot of fun statistics and observations by the Hollywood Reporter and Variety and IndieWire and others. Uh, among them, international flair. Are new members having an impact? It sure looks like it. All five docs have an international flair. There were voters from 93 countries. For the first time, we have three Best Picture nominees that are entirely or mostly in a language other than English. We have three Best Pictures directed by women. We have Lily Gladstone, the first Native American woman nominated for Best Actress. And then we have some other stats. Scorsese, his 10th Oscar nomination as director, passing Spielberg's nine. Uh, That's not the most of all time, because William Wyler has been nominated 12 times and won Best Director three times. So there you go. And Spielberg is ahead of Scorsese in producing, because he has 13 
Best Picture nominations, thanks to his involvement in Maestro. Uh, Netflix has the most Oscar nominations with 18, and Apple is tied for second with 13. It's an era of streamers, isn't it? Get over the idea that streamers can't win or won't win, or they're here and they're part of the club now, aren't they? Well, yeah, I mean, it's really only Netflix that doesn't even bother to put movies in theaters. Uh, they do. They put movies in their theaters where nobody actually <laughs> goes to see them. Uh, but for the most part, they are. Yeah, everybody's I mean, happy. Everybody's happy because Apple has said, hey, we're going to put movies in movie theaters. They may not be in there as long, but they will get a theatrical release. And, and you know what? Uh, Killers of the Flower Moon was in for a good seven to eight weeks. It's still playing. So yeah, that, still that, got, that, that got a real r- run, didn't it? But Roadhouse, Roadhouse, by, directed by Doug Lyman, starring Jake Gyllenhaal, for some reason, they are not bothering to put Roadhouse in theaters. Am, am, you know, it was supposed to be a theatrical film. The, they got bought out by Amazon MGM. They took over the movies, and they're like, all right. And they thought they were going to be making a movie theatrical. And now they're like, no, it's going straight to streaming. In fact, it's playing at South by Southwest, world premiere. And Doug Lyman's like, you know what? I'm not going because this movie is supposed to be playing in theaters. That's why and how we made it there. And for God's sake, Sperling, they could make real money. Like you know the what? idea that it's smarter not to put it on your streamer. Having a hit box office movie is only going to help you when it comes to prime video. You know, I would, if I were Amazon and I know this is probably not a corporate thing to say, I would let Doug Lyman throw a temper tantrum and then I'd say, no, make it bigger. Make, make, make it, make it, come on, kick, scream, cry, go to the press, get all that, get it out there. And then I would renege and I go, yep, you know what, Doug, we're going to listen to you. We're going to put it in movie theaters because that is marketing. And then you don't have to spend as much money on marketing because you can say, thank you, Doug, for throwing a hissy fit. (laughs) But theaters are desperate for product. And exactly. the idea that a movie like Roadhouse would be more valuable going straight to a streamer than making money in a theater, even if it doesn't make a lot of money, it's still going to raise its profile enough to make it worth your while. Not Completely every agree. Movie, not every movie should go to theaters necessarily that you make for a streamer, but Roadhouse? You know, that's, that's just bonkers. Anyway, aren't you glad you go to con? Nine films that screamed at Cannes received Oscar nominations. In fact, the top prize at the Palm d'Or went to Anatomy of a Fall, and the runner-up was The Zone of Interest. So well, time well spent, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Uh, and, you know, I, th- I thought Zone of Interest should have won last year, uh, the Cannes yeah. Film Festival. So, hey, it's, it's still going. I'm glad to see that it, it was remembered. I'm glad that uh, Past Lives was remembered. I thought that was the best film I saw at Sundance last year. It was also at Berlin. Uh, and, uh, killers of the flower moon was there. Uh, you know, yeah, Yeah. I'm glad I I go to Sundance and, and to Cannes. Um, that said, I'm trying, I'm just quickly scrolling through the, the nominees here. A lot of the international feature films were there. Perfect days was well, nine films, nine films were at Cannes and came here. So yeah, that's very cool to see. Diane Warren got her 15th best song nomination, but she's still not going to win. John Williams got his 54th best score nomination, which he probably didn't deserve, though he's one of the greats, and hopefully he won't win. Uh, It'll be Oppenheimer. This is cool. Six of the 10 best film nominees were basically out, uh, certainly seen by critics and well-covered because they were at con or something, by June. Most of the movies up for Best Picture came out in the first half of the year. You can put that, you know, fear to rest. Uh, Greta Gerwig, 
not nominated for Best Director, but this is pretty cool. She's the first person to see their first three films nominated for Best Picture. No one's ever done that before. Lady Bird, Little Women, and Barbie, all three well-deserved nominees for Best Picture. Uh, so that is a great track record. Bradley Cooper's done it with his first two films. Uh, so that's kind of cool. And he's the fourth person to direct himself to at least two acting nominations. Uh, Olivier did it, Warren Beatty did it, Clint Eastwood did it, and now Bradley Cooper. And half the acting nominees, and it's a pretty good diverse list, are first-timers. But the only stat that matters is Gerwig not getting a Best Director nomination and thus making it seem like Barbie is a, also ran for Best Picture, even though it got a Supporting Actor, Supporting Actress, and all sorts of nominations. Of course, you can argue she deserved it, but there's five director slots and 10 movies. So if you want to say somebody on that list of five directors doesn't belong, you have to say kick out Scorsese, which you may say, or Yogos Lanthimos, or Jonathan Glazer, or Justine Trier, which I doubt you would say, or somebody, you know, so who's going to come off the list? But basically, there's a simple way to fix this problem, because it happens every year. There are five director nominees and 10 best pictures, and then everyone says those five movies that didn't get best director, they look like losers. Right. So what are they going to do? I think that what I think they should add maybe one more nominee maybe two uh you don't want no. a 10 10 you think 10 why 10? not why not if there's uh. 10 best pictures there should be 10 10 best directors it doesn't follow that there would be 10 best actors or actors and all that but if there are 10 movies up for best picture there should be 10 nominees for best director one of them or two of them will always not be a movie nominee for best picture and that will show the lack of interest for them though Argo won Best Picture, despite Ben Affleck not getting a Best Director nomination. It's not a lock, but, you know, yeah, why not? I, I mean, I think it's, you know, I think it should happen. But again, Barbie was nominated for Best Picture of the Year and lots of other nominations, though not uh, uh, its star either, Margot Robbie. That's also a, a Shonda. That shouldn't have happened. And there are definitely people on the Best Actress list that I would say, you know what? Take them off and put Margot Robbie on there. But Top grossing films of the year nominated for Best Picture. It happens a lot. About once out of every three years, the top grossing film is nominated for Best Picture, just like Barbie did. Now, when, how often do they win? In all of Oscar history, the last 95 years, only 14 films have been the top grossing film of the year and won Best Picture. It happens about once every seven years. That's actually not so bad. You know, to be the top and women, but it was a lot more likely in the 30s to the 50s and 60s than it is now. In the last 50 plus years, only five movies, if you go back to 1970, were the top grossing movie of the year and won Best Picture. That's like once a decade. If you look at it, the last 50 years, only The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, Titanic, Rain Man, Rocky, and The Godfather. So, Best Grossing movies get nominated for Best Picture. It's happening a lot less often. And Best Grossing Movies win Best Picture, but that's pretty rare. And it's becoming rarer. So that's where we are. It happens, but not so often. And, you know, it's a bummer for Greta Gerwig. But did she start at Sundance? Did she get a kick? Yeah, I don't remember. I think as an actress, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, maybe as an actress, for sure. She probably got a a step up from Sundance. I'm sure she's been. And you were at the Sundance Film Festival. It was the first year of programming uh, for our friend Eugene Hernandez. Hernandez, I should say. Uh, What was the verdict? How did he do overall? I think he he did fairly well. Uh, You know, there was no 
standout movie where people like raced out of the theater going, oh my God, that was uh, the second, uh, that was Winter's Bone, that was Blue Valentine, that was Manchester by the Sea, that was Clerks. There was nothing like that. Um, I don't necessarily know, given that, you know, we're in an age of streaming, that that would happen. Uh, there was, you know, last year's Fair Play, everybody raced out going, oh, that was an amazing movie. It sold for $20 million to Netflix. Oops. And then promptly, nobody ever saw it. So, you know, I, I don't really know. He doesn't make the movies. He can only deal with the movies that are offered up. And of course, it was a tough year for new movies because of the strikes and the COVID. So it was hard for movies to come in. They seem to have gotten a lot of nominees, but that could affect the uh, quality or what they had to choose from. But just because there's not one big buzzworthy title, there were certainly good movies that were seen. But one thing that seems clear is that there were fewer films this year. Was that because of the strike? No, I think it's just because, you know, uh, uh, the films that would normally be made for a Sundance are now going to streamers first. I think it's just, you know, fewer films are being made that are of, of a decent quality. Of course, you'll hear them say, we had 17,000 entries this year. Yes, well, that's because anybody who makes a movie with their camcorder can submit a movie. Nobody said your movie had to be good to submit it. Um, I so think if, that if, they're, they're, if they're made for a streamer, does that mean they don't want to take it to Sundance first? Are streamers wary of going? Yeah. Sometimes they just want it to be, you know, to be, you know, uh, released and therefore there's no reason to bring it to Sundance. Uh, There are fewer films because the whole, basically the whole uh, festival at Sundance kind of shrunk a little bit. And I don't mean that in, in a negative way per se, it's just kind of a reality. Well, they're, they're facing a lot of financial problems, aren't they? Yes. They had two years where they couldn't hold the festival 2021 COVID. Yes. And 2022 where they had to pivot and they did both years online. Uh, And, then last year, when they came back, they lost a venue. They didn't lose it. They just said, we're not, we're not going to put people in the racket club because Sundance is held in Park City, Utah. It's a ski town. They have a, lo- they have a movie theater, but they have a lot of made up uh, movie theaters where they have. They do temporary spaces for right. Sundance. They, take, they repurpose places and go, okay, go to this ballroom. Go to that, go to that racket club. And yeah. uh, this year, they're doing less of that, I take it. Yes, last year they were down one venue. This year they're down two venues. In fact, that's one it? of the just two, uh, two, but they're two of the bigger venues. Ah, so uh, you know they still have uh, you know the Eccles, and for instance, so they have the Eccles, which is the giant high school auditorium, Park City High School, can probably fit about twelve hundred people in there. They had it, you know, it's a ten day festival. They had it for ten days in past years. This year they had it for about five or six days. I could be wrong about that, but they they definitely had it you know, for less time. And they used to have screenings starting at 8.30 in the morning, you know, really early in the morning. Mm-hmm. Now some of their screenings start at 10.30 in the morning. You know, they're, in other words, everything is contracting just a bit. Instead of having that last screening at, you know, at, at, at some of the venues at like 10 or 11, now it's at like 8.30 because they have fewer films. So, it, but is that is that a, uh, a problem that you hope ends and that they have more films and more time and more screens or are you like you know what you got plenty of movies as is uh you know what I, i'm gonna say this i saw 40 movies in 10 days wow thanks in part to the fact that i you know i was able to stream some of them uh, mm-hmm. on their private uh platform uh and you know i definitely saw more movies in person than i did on streaming uh and so because of that I don't necessarily know that they need more films. 
some of the venues. So there were certainly a few films where it should have been in a bigger venue for the press and industry. I will say this. I finally, after maybe the fifth or sixth movie, because I go to the press and industry screenings. I try not to go to the public screenings uh, just because it it can take longer. And, you know, and I noticed there were a lot of industry people there, a lot of distributors, a lot of uh, programmers, a lot of art house programmers and art, you know, nonprofit people. And so finally, I turned to the publicists of, of a couple of films as I was on my way out. I said, hey, quick question. You guys count the, the members of the press that come in, right? Oh, yes, yes, we do. How many were there? 175 people. How many were there? Oh, about 10. And it's, and it's a, a full house, mm-hmm. you know, 175 people, but 10 journalists. So there are definitely fewer journalists going. Oh, oh, really? Oh, yes. Well, don't, don't you know how? Well, but if they're watching streaming online, it doesn't matter, does it? Uh, not, yes, I guess you're right. I mean, there are, I think this year they tried to say, if you're not coming, you don't get the online access. I think they kind of, really no, that's, a, no, that's too bad. Yeah. Um, I don't know. If, I don't know that for sure. Can't afford I, to fly to Sundance and spend the time there. Uh, it's a shame if they're legitimate journalists and you've got the streaming set up. It's a, it's a waste. It's a shame if they did that. It's well, definitely a lot getting of, more expensive to stay there. It used to be, you know, you could go six, you know, you could stay for 10 days. Now it's $600, $1,000, you could stay for a night. (laughs) That's that's a thousand bucks for 10 days is a lot. I'm sorry. You know, $100 a night. That's a lot for somebody who's just to go cover a film festival. Well, yes. You you know, their newspapers are dying. So, you know, (laughs) but deals are not dying. They're still happening. Netflix picked up its what's inside for what looks like the biggest price tag of $17 million. They got worldwide rights. We don't know what they're doing with it, but probably not a theatrical release. But my old ass went to Amazon MGM for $15 million. This Aubrey Plaza film does have planned a theatrical release. Uh, this, this that is a like movie your- that, thank goodness, because that's a movie I, I kind of was told, oh, it's a, it's a broad comedy. I was like, oh, God, Aubrey Plaza, broad. Fine, I'll go see it. And I went to see it, and it is a movie where an 18-year-old, and I'm, I'm going to try and remember, her name is Maisie Stella. And she kind of steals the show. She's 18 years old. She's heading off to college. She lives in New England on her uh, family's cranberry farm, cranberry bogs, <laughs> and, you know, in a quaint, uh, you know, New England village town. And she goes out with her friends on her 18th birthday uh, in her little boat to an island. And they, they do mushrooms, her and her two friends. And mm-hmm. she, while doing mushrooms, meets her 39-year-old self, played by Aubrey Plaza. And, she, okay. and, and she's like, okay, okay, what, should, what do I need to know? And her 39-year-old self says, thinks about it for a second and says, you know, um, if you meet anyone named Chad, just, just stay away. Don't, <laughs> just stay away. And I won't go any further than that. But, and I, it was very funny, very touching. And it was the kind of film where at the end, everybody was like, oh my God, we were crying. We were laughing. How, how did this happen? And all of the distributors were running out of the room to go make their phone calls to, to Very go. Very cool. Yeah. And I thought, you know what? This is exactly the kind of film Hollywood doesn't make anymore, but should. A, a mid-sized movie, a smaller budgeted movie that's aimed at a wide audience, just like anyone but you. Yes, correct. Do not, by well, the way, Hollywood, if you're listening, don't spend a lot of money on these movies. 
please don't make this movie for a hundred million dollars. Make it for fifteen. Make it for twenty. Yeah. Okay. Then spend another ten or fifteen marketing it. And guess what? When you have forty million dollars and something for your streaming service, you can thank me later. Well, maybe they paid too much, but the Superman documentary, Superman, it's a documentary about Christopher Reeve and his rising to fame as Superman. Then, of course, that tragic accident and he became a real superhero by, you know, fighting against his paralysis and leading the way to help raise money to help for spinal surgery and other things. That was picked up by Warner Brothers for $15 million reportedly. Not, I think the ink is dry on the deal, but... It makes sense because Warner Brothers, of course, owns Superman the movie and they can use the clips and cross promote and they can have it on CNN. And it sounds like it'll be a valuable part of a library, though. 15 million for a fairly traditional document. That's a lot of money. But if they put it on CNN, they might actually be able to make their money back just in in linear commercials alone. Well, they have it on. Well, that's a lot of money for a product that you put on CNN. But yeah, I'm sure they'll run it endlessly on CNN eventually. Presumably, a theatrical release, and then you know, take it to you know HBO Max, and there'll be air on premiere on CNN and so on. So they've got the structure for it, but that still seems like a lot of money. And finally, a real pain: the Jesse Eisenberg directorial debut. He's making a theatrical. No, no, directorial. He, he had one film before that. No, I'm sorry, not debut, but yeah, he's doing a theatrical directorial debut here in New York, uh, and so that's kind of cool, and here he is directing his second film, starring he and Kieran Culkin, uh, a raucous comedy about uh, going to Holocaust camps? Uh, no, well, so they're, they play cousins who, uh, after their grandmother's death, go to Poland, the, the, you know, where their grandmother was from, and she was ah. in a concentration camp, and they do, there are these tours that will take you through certain- of course. Uh, World War II kind of, you know, it's kind of a Holocaust tour, uh, very somber uh, tour. And yes, it's it's funny because Jesse Eisenberg plays a character who's just neurotic and he's just constantly, and Kieran Culkin is just obviously a manic depressive bipolar like he's he's very uh, amped up and the the combination is funny. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's also you know, serious. kind of a, very Quiet. serious. Yes. Yeah. She went to Searchlight for $10 million. So those were the big deals. And of course there were top winners because no film captured the zeitgeist. There was no big dominating movie to win uh, the critic and the audience award in any category, I don't think. But In the Summers won a top drama. Didi won the audience award and Porcelain War won the top documentary. Uh, so overall, would you say it was a good year? Yeah, so it was a good year. I would say, uh, you know, certainly there are some films that I think uh, will certainly will stick with me. And as always, Sundance does a very good job of capturing themes and certain uh, trends. Uh, This year, obviously, AI, right? Artificial Mm -hmm. intelligence. They had a documentary on uh, uh, companies that create you know, your, your, your loved ones, your, your deceased loved ones, you can talk to them via AI and eternal how, you, eternal you very spooky <laughs> and whether and questionable, by the way, they also had a movie in which, and, and I kid you not, this movie starred Kirsten Stewart and Stephen Young. And it, it, it was a satellite falls in love with a smart buoy. Okay. That is, that is, I'll, I'll just leave that there. And it Please. was all done, you know, AI. Was it good? Like half animated, half. Uh, you know, not. I didn't particularly care no. for it. 
And they and they've got a new hip phrase for movies that I'm really finding annoying. It's already my called. hip phrase, by the way. I, oh, 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 oh! I thought it was the trend. Experiential movies, Lordy Mighty. Let's drop that one. So, what do you mean by an experiential movie? Uh, well, it's a movie where you go and you know, it it doesn't necessarily have a narrative through line, but you're learning something and just the way it looks and the way it looks and the way it kind of washes over you is almost the intent of the movie. Gaucho so Gaucho is a beautiful mm-hmm. documentary shot on high grain, contrasty black and white about the the uh, gauchos in Argentina. And it was just so, it was like a time capsule. Not nocturnes, a, yeah. A movie about moths, okay? You'd think that this would not be, but it was so dreamy and it was almost like I was learning stuff I didn't even mean to learn, but yet somehow I just experienced it. And I think the phrase you're looking for is a stoner movie. <laughs> Pretty much, yes. I was kind of, I didn't want to say it, but since you did, yes, it's a stoner movie. Fine. It's experiential. It's really good, man. Okay, so uh, <laughs> I want to see Superman. I would like to see Devo. It looks like a fun documentary about the new wave band Devo. Yes, I mean, that was a straight down the road Right, right down the middle documentary. Oh, I heard it was very experimental and fun and offbeat. I oh, thought it yeah. was like it had all sorts of mix of stuff. And the one I really wanted to see, you don't mention, that's the documentary about Brian Eno. Uh, I didn't great, see it. Ah, well, there you go. A great, uh, great artist and a great producer. One of the major figures in rock and roll. And it's kind of cool because it generates itself slightly differently every time. So there are a thousand plus permutations of this movie. Every time you see it, it will be slightly different. So you know, that's kind of cool. Yeah. And and the movie that I thought would get picked up was Ghost Light, directed by Kelly O'Sullivan and Alex Thompson. It's kind of like therapy through Shakespeare. Uh, and, you know, family had a death, you know, death of their son and the, the husband, a you know, construction worker, winds up in a community production of Romeo and Juliet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and speaking of topical things, War Game, directed by Tony Gerber and Jesse Moss, yeah. is, is about, it's a documentary that, Last January 6th, January 6th, 2023, the government did a war game in which they they pretended as if there was a coup taking place. Another coup, yeah. They said, what are we going to do next time? We got to get this right. <laughs> and they filmed the whole thing. Uh, Kneecap, by the way, was a film by Rich Pepiot. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, set in Ireland about Irish rappers. So they are... They, are, they live in Northern Ireland and they speak Irish and they, they rap in Irish. Kneecap is the name of the group. They played themselves. I didn't know this until the end of the movie. I was like, oh, this is a true story. <laughs> this is kind of based <laughs> on a true story. Uh, and it was, uh, it, it, that was a lot of fun. Sony Picture Classics picked it up. Um, and Will and Harper, Will Ferrell and Harper Steele. Will Ferrell uh, has had a friend who was the, one of the head writers at Saturday Night Live. He came out as trans during the pandemic. They go on a road trip together. And I thought, "Ah, fine, I'll go see this movie. I got a ticket. Stephen Garrett, our friend, gave me a ticket. I was not looking forward to it. I thought, this will be funny, but let's just go and do it. Get it over with. Nobody's ever going to see this movie again. It'll be medicine, medicine. Right. This movie was amazing. I thought, not only, yes, it's got Will Ferrell, so it's funny, but it they went across the country this guy is now, well, this woman. No, now, this woman, Harper yeah, Steele, yes. Yeah, and, but, and it went through all of the, the machinate, all the turmoil in his own head about- Her, I mean, her. I know it's difficult, sorry. but- Yeah, you know, it, uh, and it was, 
absolutely phenomenal. They went to places in Oklahoma. I mean, this is a person who used to like to go to dive bars in Oklahoma. Now, can he do that as a trans woman? She do that as a trans woman? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it was, people were, uh, you know, in tears and on their feet at the end of that movie. And yet it got nothing. So. It didn't get, it didn't get a, uh, it was were in, you surprised? Uh, it was in uh, the mid, oh, it not, was in the, uh, not midnight, uh, premieres. So it wasn't up for an award. It wasn't in competition. It wasn't I in competition. See. Well, that's cool. So you were happy you went. Anything else you'd like to say about this year's Sundance? Please don't add in more movies. Keep it smaller. It's plenty big enough as it is. Or what would you like to say? Uh, one, well, I, I'm going to add two, two docs. Skywalker's a love story. Didn't get picked up. Everybody loved it, but I think the reason it didn't get picked up that I know of right now is it's a movie about rooftoppers, people who go up on the tops of roofs and cranes and do it illegally, and it's very dangerous, and, and people are dying. And they're dying. Chinese, right? Uh, they are Russian. Oh, Russian, I beg your pardon. Russian, a, that's right. Yeah, two different rooftoppers who wind up meeting and falling in love and doing these insane stunts. No one wants, no one wants to be liable. Right. It's insane. It's like everybody loved it because it's a good story, but God, is it irresponsible but ibeline this is a movie by benjamin Ree, who did the painter and the thief several years ago Mm -hmm. that movie was great this movie is great it is about a boy whose name is now escaping me he is born he has they find out he has muscular dystrophy duchenne's it's and his parents think, oh, you know, he, he slowly, and I'm not giving anything away here. People with Duchenne's do not live very long, uh, you know, mm. maybe 20 years. It's Matstein. Uh, Matstein, a Norwegian Mott gamer. Steen, yes. Yeah. And he, he, they, they finally said, okay, fine, you can game. As he was losing his ability to walk and, and even talk, uh, you can game. And he would spend hours and hours and hours playing World of Warcraft. And they thought when he died... He, he never had a chance to love or make friends or socialize. He never had a normal life. And what they found out was he had written a blog about his experience with Duchenne's. He had made dozens of friends through World of Warcraft and affected so many lives. Cool. In the week after his death, this is a movie that will stay with you. It is, I was surprised it didn't, it, I don't know if it could win. Uh, I think it was, I don't know whether it was a premiere or not. Um, and I'm just quickly looking that up, but it was definitely, uh, it was in the world documentary category. So it technically could have won. It was very, very good. It won the audience award, uh, in the world cinema documentary. Oh, well then, yeah, it makes perfect sense. It and is. Netflix acquired the distribution rights to the film. Yes. So there you go. So that's a success story. Uh, an inspiring As life this year, I guess. Yeah. Well, we've also got to look at some unions and some firings. Unfortunately, the DGA, this really rocked people. I was surprised by this, but they locked in many of the successes of the WGA. Its contract will retroactively include a bonus for streaming success equal to what the WGA acquired, as well as their somewhat limited access to data. They also got pay increases and bigger employer contribution to pension and health plans. But other people were pissed. They were like, I guess they weren't properly informed. They didn't like how it was done, how secret it was. Other unions were not happy about this. I thought it was just like, well, great. <laughs> but people were not happy. Are you familiar with this at all? No. I mean, when you say people were not happy, who are the people? and why The WGA they ha- and SAG-AFTRA. Oh, the yes, other that unions. I well, I that don't know I, why. I mean, uh, because they, they, it, it was I, how I, it was done. Yeah, I but can they, tell you oh, why. Oh, you're right. Yeah, they, I, because they, pa- no. they broke the pattern. That was the whole point. They broke the the SAG and the WGA broke the pattern. The DGA went first. 
They struck the deal. Then basically the studios turned to the WGA and SAG and said, well, you can take the DGA deal. Let's start well, they from there. They actually went second. So the WGA was on strike. Then the DGA made a deal. Then SAG went on strike. So they felt like the DGA took the easy way out in every possible way and yet still benefited from what they did. Correct. So they're like, yeah, glad we did all that work. And, you know, not that the DGA didn't honor the strike though, but yeah, so they're unhappy about that. The Musicians Union talks are opening with a focus on streaming and AI. Go figure. By the way, studios, if you think they're not serious about striking or whoever is, you know, negotiating with the musicians, they are. You know, just work on a deal. <laughs> Video games, not good. Riot Games, the company behind League of Legends and the game Arcane, fired more than 500 people, about 11% of its total worldwide staff. According to the LA Times, a story that ran right after that, the video game industry has seen more than 10,000 layoffs since January of 2023. And right after that, Microsoft announced layoffs. So you can make that about 12,000 layoffs since January of 2023. They acquired Activision Blizzard and fired about 1,900 employees between it and Xbox. But the firings don't stop there. The LA Times reporting oh, on the video. Don't get me started on the LA Times. I get the they, LA Times every day. And it's they fired thin, at you know. least 115 people, 20% of its workforce. Uh, they say we're losing money every day. And we just can't afford all this. And CNN Philippines shut down their bureau. And they say they've been losing money for years. They fired 300 people. If they had 300 people in the Philippines, I would say, good Lord, that's an awfully big bureau for the Philippines. That Maybe that's part of the problem. But well, wow, keep yeah. in mind that when they say that they have a bureau there, they actually have their own channel there. So it's it's. Oh, not, do they? Oh, okay. I believe so. Yeah, and so they now, might be covering the region, of course, not right, just exactly. the Philippines. Uh, but yeah, so LA Times looking thin. Oh my God, it's so thin. And it's sad. I subscribe. Why do I subscribe? Because I don't want to be a part of the problem. Mm. I want to be a part of the solution. One way I can be a part of the solution, support them. One way I can support them, buy the darn newspaper. And that's what I do. Good. But Good. I, the, the problem is nobody wants it. Nobody wants to pay for the newspaper online. And so therefore they will slowly go out of business. Now, the New York Times has found a way to make people pay. They have become a lifestyle brand, so to speak. I, I don't necessarily- Lifestyle brand? What? Well, b with their cooking and their, their games oh. and their, their different sections, their travel section. and it's Well, they're popular, but yeah, they also do a lot of hard news reporting. I mean, yeah. I have oh, issues gosh, yes. with their reporting, yeah. but it's not like they've just become, you know, a channel on home and garden, for God's no, sake. No, 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 not at all. Not the at LA all. Times had a story on Palm Springs- and a new law they passed that said, you know what? There's a cap. You can only have so many short-term rentals in any one neighborhood. You can only have 10%, meaning one out of every 10 homes could be rented out. And that's the cap. And a lot of neighborhoods were already over that cap. So it was like no more, right? And they did this story about that. And they basically about Airbnbs. And they said how, how awful it was. And they quoted all the speculators who bought houses hoping to flip them and make them into B. It's like, how about, and prices are coming down. It's like, Yes, that's the point, to not have your neighborhood overrun by rentals and home prices coming back down so people can actually live there. And they've made it sound like the worst thing in the world. It sounds like it's working just the way it should. Yeah, Maybe that I article agree. should have been written by AI. You talked about AI at uh, Sundance, and there's a lot going on. Open AI are reaching out in the UK. They send a letter to the House of Lords saying it would be, quote, impossible to have created ChatGPT 
without access to copyrighted materials. To which the New York Times said, we know. (laughs) (laughs) But it's like, I'm sorry we had to steal your material. We just couldn't start our business without it. To which you might say, well, maybe you shouldn't have your business if you can't do it without stealing our material. The Authors Guild is, however, considering a blanket license that writers would have to opt into. So you wouldn't get every writer and then they'd have to pull out, but you would have a blanket license. And if writers wanted to sign on to it, they could. They would include restrictions on creating content in the style of authors. So you couldn't say, write me a story like Charles Dickens or John Grisham, uh, and also restrictions on summaries and so forth. Monies would include a fee if you copied their work to train your thing and more fees whenever referencing the content in a response to a request. So if they said, I want to know something about John Grisham novels, you got to pay a dime to John Grisham and so on and so forth. Uh, So there you go. So Hmm, there you go. Um, George Carlin, this is weird. His estate is suing these people. They apparently used AI, trained it on material by George Carlin, created a new special, a comedy special, mimicking his appearance and voice and comedic style. It's called, I'm glad I'm dead. <laughs> and oh. so the family's like, no, you can't do that. <laughs> so I'm like, how did they even think they could do that? I don't even understand how it's a court case and they wouldn't have to just shut it down immediately. They don't have the rights to George Carlin's face and voice. Taylor Swift, did you look at the pictures? I have no idea even what you're talking about. Wow, I mean, she, you were at Sundance. Yeah, I mean, unless, really unless at, what you're saying is that she's like everywhere, yes, that makes no, sense. No, AI was used uh, to create fake, deep fakes of Taylor Swift nude, and they flew around the internet to the point where I believe one of the social platforms has said, you cannot search for Taylor Swift right now, for Taylor Swift nude, because there are just all these fake nudes. sag came out with a quote saying, you know what? This needs to be illegal. Creating deep fakes of anyone, famous or regular person, creating humiliating nude stuff of people that's a lie has to be illegal. We need to work this out. Whatever's going on with AI and these companies and the suing and use of copyright and fake nudes and fake uh, political ads, it's going to be end up in court, isn't it? I mean, it's a big oh, deal. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot to deal with, but it's going to have to be dealt with by the courts. Well, if that's a big deal, then I, you know, I have to ask, you know, mm-hmm. what do you think about some of our stories in Big Deal or Big Whoop? Because it is time for Big Deal or Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story, well, it would have been a big deal five years ago. Now we'll find out. The passionate music review website Pitchfork is almost no more. It began in 1996 and made a name for itself with passionate, often snarky reviews, the indie alternative to Rolling Stone, now that Rolling Stone was so, you know, corporate. It became a successful website indeed and was purchased by Condé Nast in 2015. But in November of 2023, Condé Nast said it would be firing about 5% of the workforce, some 270 employees. Now it is, quote unquote, merging, we don't know what that means, merging Pitchfork with GQ, which makes, yeah, yeah, no sense at all. It's like, no, I don't get it. Uh, but there you are. Presumably even more folk are being fired. We give this change to Pitchfork a review of one out of 10. Why not zero? Well, at least it's not totally dead yet. Big deal or big whoop? Yeah, it feels like a big whoop that it's time had passed, but these are people's jobs. It's a bummer how it even makes sense to, I mean, GQ has music reviews and other reviews, but still it's, it's a, it's a bizarre merge. It's like, why don't you just kill it? <laughs> you know, what's just put a gun to its head. Good Lord. Yeah. There was a, some, a lot of uh, stories about the state of music journalism. And I was like, wait, 
You still write about music? (laughs) Didn't know that. Uh, The Daily Show was looking for a new host. Uh, Hello. Hello. Yeah, we tried out and they said, um... Yeah, no. you guys have the uh, the the face for uh, you know a podcast, uh, <laughs> and they tried uh, guest host after guest host after guest host after yes, I mean literally like a year's worth, and it was a lot of fun, and the ratings were fine, and then they said, you know, we're just gonna you know keep a rotating team of reporters, which seemed odd kind of until. Well, until they announced that Jon Stewart would return to host the show once a week through election season. Now that makes more sense. But is it a big deal or a big whoop? Uh, I think it's a big whoop. You know, nothing else Jon Stewart did worked that well. But that's okay. He had like 15 years on top of the world, right? <laughs> Doing, you know, the idea that you should have endless success for all your lives. No, he had that great time. It was great. And as others have pointed out, our in-house film critic, Aaron Rich, you know, they were like the Saturday Night Live in terms of creating talent and sending them out into the world from Steve Carell on down. I mean, there are so many people who got a start and then really shone elsewhere from The Daily Show. So bringing Stewart back on as a producer uh, that'll be great if he stays on for years to come because he is a great spotter of talent. That's the show you wanted to be on. Once a week with other people doing it, three other nights a week or whatever, uh, you know, they really should have just made a decision. But I guess if they thought they could get Jon Stewart back even one night a week, it's better than nothing. Well, and, you know, Billy Crystal came back to the Oscars. Didn't go so well. You know, all these people who come back to their, uh, yeah. you know what? Look at, uh, ask Bob Iger how it's going. I, I think that, you know, he's also coming back to a completely different landscape television-wise. The linear yeah. business is declining. And frankly, a different landscape comedy-wise. You know, you can get in, into a lot of trouble very quickly based on, on certain things. And the country, yes, it was divided when he left in 2015, but it's nearly 10 years later. The country is in a completely different place. And it, it'll be very interesting to see how he... Sorts well, there all you go. Out. That's what that's what they hope. You'll want to tune in to see how he does. Yeah. Well. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Well, TV producer companies from around the world came together with a plea for more regulation of streamers and especially regulation of IP ownership. Ironically. China was a part of this. They want two things, these producers. One, they want the requirement that streamers must invest in local content to continue. Two, they want the IP, the intellectual property, for the majority of that local content to be owned by the local producers of it. That's the only way they believe local production companies can survive and thrive. 20 organizations representing tens of thousands of companies signed a statement demanding lawmakers protect producers and local content. Big deal or big whoop? Not only is it a big deal, it would be a really good deal for streamers if they would only wake up. It's not healthy or good for them not to have a lot of suppliers around the world creating content and creating talent and nurturing directors and actors and writers. This is good for the industry as a whole. They don't think it's good for them because they're stupid and they think short term and they just want to own everything. But they've been working around all these local rules and sort of plopping down companies to create local content. And it's in the local language and it's good that they're doing that. But to have real that ecosystem that the entire industry depends on, uh, this is the way to go. So I hope they succeed and I hope other countries follow suit. And the EU, by the way, is looking at requiring music streamers to pay artists more royalties, which is another thing that they really need to do because the streamers ain't going to do it on their own. And guess what? 
If you're licensing all that music and you can't afford to pay people a decent rate, you don't really have a business. So either raise your rate and see how many people want to pay $20 a month for Spotify or get out of the business. Apparently, most of the writing staff of Sports Illustrated is fired or will be soon. Are they replaced by AI? Which I think they actually had a few AI articles (laughs) that they got dinged for. Uh, Maybe. You know, maybe they're replaced by no one, actually. In 2019, a company bought Sports Illustrated for $110 million and fired a third of the staff. Then it licensed the rights to publish it to another company in 2021. That company, the company named Arena, just missed a quarterly payment. And now the first company, called Authentic Brands, they have seized back the rights to the name and publication, hence the firing of the staff. They're out of money and can't publish the magazine anymore. Authentic insists the magazine will continue in some form. The whole thing is a mess. And is it a big deal or a big whoop? Oi, oi, oi. It's just such a sad state of affairs for all when Sports Illustrated can't survive again, like you said about Jon Stewart. It's an entirely new world. I mean, not for them. Right. I mean, they licensed it in 2021. Already in 2021, you knew that covering uh, sports was a whole new ball game. Sports Illustrated was not the only game in town. They want their sports news now, not weekly. Uh, so it's just a mess and awful to see. But oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I walked well, through a Walmart and there was the Sports Illustrated swimsuit calendar. So somebody's still doing something. <laughs> right. Well, and basically, Arena had to pay $15 million a year for the rights to publish the magazine. And oh, I didn't know. I know it was a total of $45 million. I didn't know how- I think how, it was a multi-year how, deal. Well, it was, but I didn't know how long it was for or how they were painted out or whether it was $15 million a year. But yeah, they miss your payment. You don't get to keep the rights. <laughs> so right. yeah. But by but the way- Can you imagine these, any publisher now going, okay, it's January 1st. Let's start the year and try and make a profit. Well, you're already $15 million in the hole. <laughs> it's just- By the way, Authentic sense. Brands is branched out. They have Sports Illustrated Resorts. But they are not connected to the company that was running the magazine, by the way, and did all that crap with AI. Uh, this is a joint venture between sports, hospitality, and travel and leisure. They've already opened a Sports Illustrated Resort in the Dominican Republic and have a second one scheduled for Tuscaloosa, Alabama, Roll Tide, in 2025. A third one in Ann Arbor, Michigan might happen. Those rights are retained by authentic brands. So they never gave those rights up. Like, yeah, I do, do wonder how much... I wonder how much those rights are worth when the Sports Illustrated you're referring to doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, yeah, that's a problem. And do you really want to stay at a Sports Illustrated Resort anyway? Does that really, why would that make you say, oh, I want to stay, they know hotel and hospitality, huh? Yeah, well, question, are the swimsuit models there or? Ah, I'm just just wondering. And why isn't there a male swimsuit model issue? For the love of God, it's been 50 years or whatever. Isn't it about time they had a male swimsuit issue? Come on. Okay, it's just me. All right. Uh, Spectrum. (laughs) Well, it's a brand. It can make money off a swimsuit, male swimsuit calendar, surely. Yeah. Uh, Spectrum, you remember them? They like bundling, Mm -hmm. you know, my cable company, your cable company. We come to know and love and hate, hate to love, love to hate. Of course. Uh, In a groundbreaking deal with Disney, it was able to dump some low-performing linear channels (laughs) while getting a chance to bundle in Disney Plus for some of its cable subscribers. Uh, Basically, that's going to happen now all over the place. And now... Spectrum, they're doing the same with another streamer. In a major deal with Televisa Univision, Spectrum will bundle access to the streamer for certain upper-tier customers. I don't know what an upper-tier customer is like in cable these days, but are cable and streaming going to join forces before it's too late? 
And is this a big deal or a big whoop? Uh, yes, though it might be too late. And yes, it's a big deal, right? I mean, this is the wave of the future. They're all going to keep bundling with each other because it's the only way to stay alive. Judge Judy is returning to daytime TV in a big deal. The 250 episodes created so far of Judy Justice are being syndicated. They'll hit the airwaves this fall after being exclusively on Amazon's Freebie platform. Figures on how many people access and watch Freebie and specifically Judy Justice are few and far between, enough to make it profitable, of course, since the show continues. But it's safe to say most of Judge Judy's older fans never even knew how to watch it or that it existed. Freebie? What the heck is Freebie? Yeah. So uh, these episodes will be essentially new for these folks and compete with the rerun shown on a loop by Judge Shineland's previous employer on afternoon TV. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? I make fun of it, but I have seen a lot of Judge Judy in my time because my mom was watching it. She did not like this revamp, but nonetheless, she's a big daytime star. I didn't like some of the things they did, but it's basically sort of kind of the same show. And it's going to be all new for most people. So they've been doing the reruns and those have been doing fine, but this could be real competition. It'll be interesting. Not everything on cable or streaming works when you do it in syndication. Sex in the City, The Sopranos, nope. But Judy Justice, I think it could work. So I know we talked a little bit about football, uh, you know, on in previous programs. And I was watching uh, some of the the playoff games uh, two, two or three weeks ago. And the CB, the guy on CBS was like, oh, well, we're going to, you know, uh, watch the next game to see who makes it to the next round over on NBC. And I was like, I am sure right now there is a producer making a note telling you, please do not tell people to switch channels to NBC to watch the next game. <laughs> number one. And number two, uh, yesterday after the big game, you know, who was going to be in the Super Bowl, uh, one of the uh, one of the broadcasters said, uh Okay, well, you know, on on after this is, and he like looked and he was like, three reruns of Yellowstone, three re-, like he could tell he was like, is it really yeah. three hour long reruns of of Yellowstone? And I was like, oh, another producer making a note, like, who is this guy? First he sends him to NBC, now he's commenting on our programming skills. Like it was just, um, but I do think you know I, I agree with you. I don't think people were able to to find Judy Justice on Freebie. Mm, not well certainly not a lot of people i mean enough of course but i'm sure it was a draw but it will be new to the vast majority of the people so it's gonna be some powerful program and we'll have to see how it works out but that's a little inside baseball isn't it yes and inside baseball is where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing we'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly how they affect you now, we've definitely entered the era of streaming, and Nielsen has the data to prove it. They just won't tell us. Uh, I'm kidding, of <laughs> course. Uh, they've, uh, Nielsen has just released a list of the most popular titles in streaming, and the results are fascinating. The overall list is dominated by acquired titles like Suits, which is number one, with 57.7 billion minutes of viewing in 2023. No wonder we're not productive. Uh, by the way, that... 57.7 billion minutes, a new record, surpassing the 57.1 billion minutes set by The Office. Indeed, the entire top 10 overall are acquired titles, not originals, and many of them stream on Netflix. Though Suits and several others, they also stream on competitors. I love this. They didn't even do, you know, they, every week they list the top 10 overall, top 10 original, top 10 acquired and top 10 movies this time they're like top 10 overall uh, and acquired like there's no they don't need to do a top 10 acquired that's it yeah. <laughs> it was the same list <laughs> 
Well, among the original titles, the surprise winner is Ted Lasso with 16.9 billion minutes streamed in 2023, even though it's on the relatively tiny platform of Apple TV+. No wonder it's hoping the series finale is just a pause or they can figure out some sort of spinoff or maybe make another show that's that popular? I don't know. Yeah, two, yeah. Two things are clear, though. Some companies think it's a win-win when they rent their shows to Netflix and the era of peak TV, the era of an endlessly long list of TV shows swamping viewers. Well, that's over. Companies want to make money and greenlighting 500 plus shows isn't the way to do it. So let's kind of take a look at the latest news from Netflix, followed by a commentary in the New York Times by Peter Biskin. We mentioned it at the head of the program. He's the author of Pandora's Box, How Guts, Guile, and Greed Upended TV. And his op-ed for the New York Times gets almost everything, according to Michael, since I haven't read it yet, exactly wrong about the current state of television, starting with the definition of peak TV. One thing I should say, Suits is the most popular property around right now. I bet back in the day, syndicated shows like MASH or Seinfeld or Friends would have dominated over new network shows, even like ER or whatever, because they were on seven days a week in daytime and sometimes nighttime. So this isn't a new phenomenon that a syndicated or a rerun or an acquired title would be the most popular show. Uh, that's how the world works. But anyway, Netflix, they have announced they have 260 million subscribers worldwide. 80 of them, 80, 80 of them, 80 million of them are in North America. That means they have 180 million subscribers internationally, about 70%. That's, that's very cool. And they are firing to- on all cylinders. I mean, when, oh, you yeah. looked, when you looked at their earnings statement, oh, yeah. I mean, oh my gosh. 23 million people are now on their ad tier. That's where you pay a lower amount, uh, but they make more money off you than if you're on their premium tier. Uh, because you're showing ads and they get to see ads. So that's very cool. We did not get a content spend this year, but they're still spending a lot of money on content. Uh, And they made some new deals, one of which we'll save for later. But uh, HBO, uh, Warner Brothers Discovery, they made a deal so that Sex in the City can stream on Netflix. Well, you know, they got another season of this sequel and just like that, and putting Sex in the City on Netflix can make them money and send viewers, hey, I want to see the new seasons of And Just Like That, that can send them right back to HBO. So that makes sense for them, doesn't it? Uh, Yes, and you know know something else they announced? What? A a price increase, which would be like their sec. I think they had a price increase last year. So if you want that premium tier with no ads, you're going to get a price hike. And they are eliminating their lowest price tier without ads. So they're finding that doesn't work for them anymore. And so they're like, all right, you want you want a low tier? You're going to get ads. You want to jump up to one of the upper tiers? You're going to pay extra and not have ads. And that's okay, too. Um, but this is all part of television. And uh, one thing we know, the era of peak TV is over. In a piece for the New York Times, cultural critic Peter Biskin says the era of peak TV is over. He, of course, wrote the Hollywood classic uh, Easy Riders Raging Bulls about the turnover in Hollywood from the late 60s to the 70s, which I helped fact check. And he looked at TV in his new book, and he says the era of great TV kicked off by The Sopranos is kaput. He says no one's going to make bold and brave television anymore, at least not for a while, because everyone is just desperate to survive. So, Sperling, you tell us what Peter Biskin is arguing, and then I'll tell you what I think. Okay, well, he says the era of peak TV is over. He then goes on to discuss primarily the quality of TV and why it's about to fall off a cliff. I bet you could do this off the top of your head. So, um, okay, obviously the era of peak TV 
is not about quality. It's about quantity. Correct. Peak TV refers to the sheer amount of television being created, not its quality. And yes, the era of peak TV is over. But if you're talking about quality, if you're making fewer shows, does that mean quality will suffer? Or if anything, it might go up and you might actually recognize and, and be able to watch half of them. <laughs> I mean, there's too many shows being made, and sitcoms especially, the talent is just stretched too thin. So actually, lowering the amount of TV shows that people are making to the insane level that they've been at for the last few years is going to be good for everyone. It's, I mean, there's fewer jobs perhaps, but uh, overall it'll be better because maybe they'll make more episodes of the shows they're making and they'll be better quality because you'll have real writer rooms and enough staff to make good quality television. Yeah, I agree. Now, he also goes on to say, Netflix has been bleeding money to support its spectacular growth. Well, yeah, mm -hmm. okay. However, I mean, I, I'm doing your job now. I mean, the second I read that, yeah. and by the way, this is the first time I'm reading these. I did not, because, uh, you know, right. I didn't go over the show. No, I, yeah, I read the article. I was like, oh my God, everything he says is wrong. <laughs> I mean, yes, they did bleed money. Absolutely. They would tell you, oh yeah, no, we were, we were not bleeding money because bleeding is a trickle. We were hemorrhaging money. We had like an arterial bleed. We were bleeding out. By the way, we actually have this, um, it led to a condition called profitability, actually. Yeah. yeah. They made $500 million in profits in one quarter alone in 2023. They have $5 billion in free cash flow. Their stock is way up. They have stopped borrowing and they are paying down their debt. They were a profitable company shoving disks into envelopes. Then they transitioned to becoming a very different company, offering a similar service, but setting up the structure to stream programming all over the country and ultimately the world is a wholly different thing. And they managed that pivot and they were successful, but they saw they were dependent on libraries from other companies. They were licensing product from everybody else. And they knew as soon as people said, wow, they're making a lot of money and doing really well, that they would either quadruple the cost for renting their library and or start their own competing service. And Netflix consciously said, we're going to do something completely new and create our own content. And they spent a lot of money and went into debt to do that. It was a huge gamble and it has paid off tremendously. At this stage, to say Netflix is bleeding money to support its growth has been is the important part there because it's all in the past, really. They're really being responsible and playing down their debt. They're making a lot of money and they're, you know, they took a huge risk, but it paid off and they're being responsible financially. They are not still spending money hand over fist like maybe you could argue Spotify is because they've never been, you know, they've barely or never been profitable. Netflix is not in that position. Netflix only had one show up for best drama, The Crown. And it ended. And he says, we can expect even fewer original scripted shows in Netflix's future as the streamer shifts towards reality-based materials such as documentaries, stand-up, talk shows, and sports. I read that, okay, and I immediately think, wait, first of all, let's throw sports out because their whole idea of sports is sports entertainment, by the way. They don't really ever right. say sports. Uh, documentaries, stand-up, talk show, they've already done that. They're, they're in yeah. that now. But anyway, your, your point is... What, what, and, and they're not doing even more talk shows. If anything, they're pulling back on talk shows. They've always had documentaries as part of the mix. They've had a big play in stand-up, and now they may be downplaying that even a little bit. So we, And sports, yes, they had zero live sports programming, so they weren't really shifting to it. They have created two stunt live events, and they do have reality shows built around sports, but so far they don't program, they're not bidding for football baseball or basketball unless you count the wwe 
which is not a sport, but scripted entertainment. Uh, so maybe he was prescient because that deal came out after he wrote this column. Netflix did just make a $5 billion deal to get rights to all of the WWE content for the rest of the world. And that will be live events. So that they are now doing live events, which they've been practicing. Monday Night Raw moves from the USA Network to Netflix in the US, UK, Canada, and Latin America starting in 2025. It's a 10-year deal. They have an option to extend it another 10 years years uh but again it's no more a sport than like the tv series glow <laughs> but it is a live event so he wasn't uh, correct when he wrote it but he is correct now and as soon as they said the deal i'm like really you're getting in bed with vince mcmahon and didn't that blow up in his face and their face and make ari emmanuel netflix look bad for saying we're happy to do business with vince mcmahon Okay, he's out because yet another lawsuit came against him, but they should have known in advance that that was a bad idea. And before he was kicked out, he did cash in $700 million in stock. So don't think he's paying a big price. But yeah, my God, even Slim, even Slim Jim said, ah, I don't know if we want to sponsor W. Even Slim Jim said, you know what? We're, we're going to pause our advertising. <laughs> oh, And they have dominated in stand-up, but they've been tweaking that formula too. So, uh, you know, anyway, moving on. Yeah, Biskin said HBO's programming is now diluted by appearing alongside shows like the upcoming reality series Human versus Hamster. Now, I'm going to just go out on a limb here. I have no idea what Human versus Hamster is, mm -hmm. and I don't think I want to know. Well, I don't want to know either, but it's I'm sure it's on, you know, the Discovery Network or something. It's a show part of the, uh, you know, HBO Discovery Max world. Um, but like there's like, oh, the horror, they're they're on the same streamer as all this crap. It's like HBO's own programming when it was HBO has included shows like Real Sex, Taxi Cab Confessions, G-String Divas and Cat House about a brothel in Nevada. So uh, that bird has flown. He also, he says, as strong as HBO's slate of Emmy nominees for Outstanding Drama may have appeared, House of the Dragon is a prequel. The White Lotus is an anthology series. The Last of Us is based on a video game and Secession has ended its run. I have no idea why that's even, why make that, like, who cares? Well, he's trying to say, yeah, sure, HBO had four of the five best drama nominees, but that's that's misleading because look at what they are. So it's who like, cares? Well, yeah. yeah, exactly. The White, the White Lotus is an anthology series, like shows going back to the beginning of television. That's not a criticism. The Last of Us is based on a video game. It's also one of the most acclaimed shows in television. Uh, House of the Dragon is a prequel and not a very good one. And yes, Succession has ended its run, but that's what they said when you know eight, uh, when The Sopranos ended. And that's when they said when Game of Thrones ended, what will they ever do? It's like, it ain't easy to follow up a big hit, but they keep doing it. So it's not even a criticism. It's like, whatever. <laughs> so. Well, okay. He says, no longer is there discernible difference between disruptors and disrupted. Netflix's recent hits like The Crown could easily have been produced by a network. Some of its other hits were Young Sheldon, still going strong on CBS, uh, and that's available on Netflix. Yeah, this idea that they're cheating because they have acquired programming. Like, oh, see, most of their programming, or a lot of it is acquired. Yeah, just like HBO and virtually every cable channel you watch. TBS, TNT, TCM, they all acquire. Your local TV station acquires programming. This is not new, nor is it bad. Do it smartly and well, and it's good. In By fact, the way, young in, until I think it was 1996, you had to acquire the programming. You couldn't own it. 
Right, which was a better world. Right. Uh, Young Sheldon, by the way, is not still going strong in a way because this is its final season. So he should have known that and said even, you know, anyway. Um, But The Crown could easily have been done by a network. Sure, I guess it's not sexually explicit. However, everybody else turned it down. It was a huge financial gamble. It wasn't even done by the BBC. It was done by Netflix. BBC would, or Channel 4 or something might have made more sense. And it's a TV show whose premise was, we're going to launch this wildly expensive period drama, and in two years, we'll get rid of the entire cast, jump forward in time, and recast all the characters. That's a gamble. I'm sorry. I'm not a huge fan of The Crown, but that was a big gamble, and they did it. So good for them. And it paid off. Yeah, exactly. Biskin writes... Ad-supported tiers mean advertisers will demand boring, safe programming. Right. So a minute ago in his column, he criticized Netflix for not having ads because that forced them to borrow money to fuel growth. Now he's saying getting ads is a bad thing. Uh, And it's true that pressure can happen. But do you think any advertisers would have been happy to place their ads at the beginning or the end of The Sopranos, Game of Thrones, Stranger Things, Wednesday. It's a new world where the nudity and stuff and the violence of Sopranos, maybe you wouldn't want to be in the middle of the show, but you'd be happy to say brought to you by General Motors. I don't think they'd have a problem with that anymore, and I don't think their audiences would care either. Biskin writes, My one consolation is that disruption is also cyclical. Eventually, TV's contraction will yield a new Netflix, a new HBO, looking to exploit a desire for bold programming. In the meantime, this year's Emmys felt like a party on the deck of the Titanic. It was a chance to raise a glass to glorious accomplishments, even as it's only icebergs ahead. What? It's always, it's uh, always, par- well, a lot of streamers are losing money. Disney's losing money, right? Others are losing money. So that's what he's talking about. We yeah. agree, sort of. I, but I don't think the Emmys were a party on the deck of the Titanic. Yes, of course, new players will come in and take bold gambles and rise. Netflix is part of the establishment. And yes, the era of too much TV is over happily. Critics were weeping over the fact that they couldn't even begin. To, they'd say, here's my corner of the thing that if four critics, and they each apologize for not having watched everything. But quality? This really bogs me. I hate this. People say, oh, the era of golden television began with The Sopranos and it's over. Guess what? The 1950s was a golden age of television. So was the 70s. So was the 80s. So was the 90s. Good TV did not start with HBO and The Sopranos. Yes, when TV was dominated by three networks and PBS... There were fewer shows and thus fewer great shows. You'd see mindless crap like Dukes of Hazard and witless sitcoms, and it was harder to avoid them because there were only three channels. Nowadays, you can avoid the crap much more easily. You don't have to watch The Real Housewives. But the 25 years before The Sopranos contained some of the greatest TV of all time that can easily stand shoulder to shoulder with the best that came after it. We have a list. All in the Family, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, MASH, Cheers, Taxi, Frasier, Faulty Towers, Brideshead Revisited, Upstairs, Downstairs, Hill Street Blues, St. Elsewhere, Police Squad, 30-something, The West Wing, Northern Exposure, SCTV, Twin Peaks, Eyes on the Prize, Free Geeks and Geeks, I'll Fly Away, The Muppet Show, The Decalogue, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Pride and Prejudice with Colin Firth, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes with Jeremy Brett, Poirot with David Suchet, Pee-wee's Playhouse, Moonlighting, Lonesome Dove, the miniseries, Ken Burns' The Civil War, and all his documentaries. Oh my God, are you going to read the entire list? Yes, Prime Suspect, it takes two minutes, Prime Suspect with Helen Mirren, The Kids in the Hall, I, Claudius, The Simpsons, The Singing Detective, Tales of the City, Seinfeld, Batman, Tracy Ullman, The X-Files, Yes, Minister, 
Cagney and Lacey, My So-Called Life, All Creatures Great and Small, The 78 Series, The Larry Sanders Show, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy with Alec Guinness. I made that list up off the top of my head. Then I went back to the Emmys list for those 25 years and said, wow, I could add another 50 shows. Believe me, there is tons of great television in every era of TV that is well worth watching. Most of them aren't available on streamers, and I wish they were. You know, every time I hear somebody use the Titanic as, uh, you know, in, in their commenting, I, I, I always think back to maybe one of Stephen Colbert's best political jokes at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. George W. Mm. Bush was president. And he, you know, he said, you know, people say the, 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 the administration, this, this president, presidential administration is, is like rearranging deck chairs on the, on the Titanic. Uh, how could they say that? This administration is flying. It's flying. If anything, it's rearranging deck chairs on like the Hindenburg. <laughs> it was, I still think it's one of his greatest jokes. <laughs> ah, it's a 90 minutes in and we've ha- and people have died. Right now? They were, so, they were so interesting. I can't help it. They were so interesting. If you're bored, you can jump to the end. Maybe there's a joke. Maybe I wish him another happy birthday. I don't know what's going to happen, but I do know some people died. Oh, my God. A lot of people died. I should really... Good grief. I'll try to be brief. Director Norman Jewison died at the age of 97. You can read our obit, but the first thing you say is, surprisingly, he was not a Jew. No. But that's sort of the... He's not, but... What I didn't know was he was raised Methodist, but because his name was Jewison, he was teased and bullied by other kids who assumed he was Jewish. So if you're wondering why Norman Jewison's career is filled with movies like In the Heat of the Night that tackle social issues, it's partly because he was bullied because people thought he was a Jew. Nonetheless, he made his professional debut in a minstrel show, which he also directed and co-wrote. That was in one of his obits. Isn't that fascinating? So he has a great and fascinating career, I have to say so. Rod Holcomb, an Emmy-winning director, died at the age of 80. Norman Jewison had Moonstruck and Fiddler on the Roof and the In the Heat of the Night and the Thomas Crown Affair. Rod Holcomb, most people I'm sure don't know of and have not, never heard of. But if you're 50 or older, you've definitely seen his work. He was a craftsman who worked on series television, mostly dramas from the 70s through the 2000s. Uh, but he also really devoted himself to the DGA. He was served on countless negotiating committees and otherwise gave back in many ways for many years. He got his break on The Six Million Dollar Man, got to direct a few episodes, never stopped working. He was a go-to guy for pilots, including ER, which is enough for anyone's epitaph. He won a DGA DGA award for that show. He also came back to shoot the ER finale, a fitting capstone to his career, and that finale finally scored him his Emmy after four nominations. As you might expect, given his work on ER, he was a pioneer in using the Steadicam and helped bring cinematic flair to TV. Over his career, he shot 21 pilots. 15 of them went to series, which is a really high percentage. China Beach, Wise Guy, The First Equalizer, Scarecrow and Mrs. King, The Greatest American Hero, and The A-Team. Believe me, uh, The Cosby Show was a big hit, but what brought NBC back from the dead originally was The A-Team, when that network could not turn on the lights. And he worked on everything you can think of, from Hill Street Blues to The West Wing to Lost to The Good Wife and Elementary, among many others. Very, very impressive career. Do you know the song Leader of the Pack? Of course I do. That's, they're usually singing it about me. <laughs> That's right. Mary Weiss, the lead singer of the girl group Shangri-Las, died at 75. They had about a year of success 
but her impact lasted thanks to songs like Remember, Walking in the Sand, Great Big Kiss, and of course, Leader of the Pack, which went all the way to number one. And Melanie went to number one. She sang Brand New Key. Fascinating career. Read our obit. I'll spare Sperling, but really, she was quite the innovator. Uh, she only had like a four or five years of real success, but it seems to be because she wasn't interested. She kind of walked away, um, but a really interesting career. Uh, so was Marlena Shaw, who died at the age of 81. You've heard the song Leader of the Pack. You probably heard Brand New Key. I got a pair of brand new roller skates. You got a brand new key. Don't be dirty. Anyway, you haven't heard of Marlena Shaw, uh, but she's cool. She's probably the only act, certainly one of the few, to gain attention by playing the circuit of Playboy clubs around the country. That got her attention from the press. That led to record labels signing her up. And then she got an audition for Count Basie, which surprised her because she thought Count Basie was dead. (laughs) And according to her obit in the New York Times, he walked out halfway through her audition in the middle of one of her songs. He was like, oh. (laughs) <laughs> and then he came back with two glasses of cognac and said, hey, you need to save your voice. You're going to need it tonight. <laughs> so that was very cool. And the song you'll know by her is California Soul. It's been a lot of commercials and it's been sampled by acts. So uh, her recordings never really captured her talent, which was on display in concert for 60 plus years. But I listened to two of her albums. Neither one of them is great, but they're interesting. And her one from the 70s on Blue Note it came out in 75. She's got the full Afrocentric outfit. She's looking strong and fierce. And the album's title is, Who Is This Bitch Anyway? Wow. Okay. <laughs> I, just, I just love that. And PDQ Bach, the composer. Okay. Actually, Peter Schickel. He died at the age of 88. Peter Schickel was a serious classical composer. PDQ Bach was his comical alter ego. Reportedly, the last and least of Johann Sebastian Bach's 20 children. And he took over Schickel's life and was really popular. He won four Grammy Awards in a row for Best Comedy Album. Yeah. Interesting, fun career. And I really want to go into this one. Mo Henry. Uh, I think this is really interesting. She was a negative cutter on hundreds of films. She died at the age of 67. The Hollywood Reporter's Carolyn Giardina did a good work highlighting her career. Uh, she uh, did everything from Jaws, uncredited, to Licorice Pizza in a career spanning 46 years. If you're like me, you kind of wondered, what's a negative cutter? Sperling, you probably didn't read this, so are you wondering, what's a negative cutter? Or can, do you know or can you take a guess? I have, uh, yeah, I know exactly what a negative cutter is. They actually cut the camera negative uh, and they splice it together. When you're making a print, a film print, you actually need to have the negative together. Of course, now it's kind of a... Bygone. Digital thing. Yeah, it's, it's not quite, by, it's not as bygone as you think. Unlike Gaffer or Best Boy and some other film jobs, you can guess. Sperling knew, but I had to guess. And you're right. They put together the final negative following the instructions of the film editor as relayed to them. It's part of post-production and is the last step before striking inter-negatives and a release print. Her aunt got into the business in the 1920s. She walked up and down Sunset Boulevard when they immigrated from Ireland, looked in the door, got a job at Fox, which became Deluxe Labs. She brought in Moe's dad, Moe's older cousins, and then Moe's dad trained her. Nepotism at its best. Her first gig was Jaws, and she did everything from The Matrix 
to Harry Potter movies. She has 500 titles listed on IMDb. However, the job of a negative cutter was a physical one and about the same for about a century. But with the rise of digital, it seems the craft of negative cutting is changing. Now you have digital editing since movies are rarely shot on film. That's led to digital intermediates and a need for negative cutters to extract the desired takes via online software. So far, less of the images that are shot need to be scanned by labs. So their job is a little more digital now, but they're still helping get it to the labs and then they work on the final cut as well. And finally, did you ever hear of David J. Skull, a scholar of horror? He dies at the age of 71. Trip Gable of the New York Times has a very nice obit about him. He was a trailblazer in treating horror films seriously. A real scholar, but he also wrote fun, entertaining books. Uh, he was a consultant for Halloween Horror Nights at Universal, and his books include The Monster Show, Screams of Reason, and a lot of books about Dracula. Oh, and then Charles Osgood, host of CBS Sunday Morning, died at 91. Charles Osgood, the journalist and TV host, died at 91. CBS Sunday Morning and Osgood in particular were known for their calm, gentle, unhurried presence. That's it. Now, literally, like that, you, you could have been, you were channeling Charles Osgood. Oh, it was eerie. It was eerie. He, he hosted that show for more than two decades, longer than Charles Kuralt. He took them to their highest ratings uh, at the time. College radio station, that's where he got his break. He was hanging out as a college student with his fellow student, Alan Alda. And an early radio gig was alongside Ted Koppel. And he always wore a bow tie because bow ties are always cool. Well, you know what's always cool? Listening to Showbiz Sandbox, which is why you should, you, yeah, you should subscribe to us in Google Podcasts, Microsoft Marketplace, iTunes, Spotify, wherever they give podcasts away for free, wherever you get podcasts, that's usually where you can find us. You can also rate and review our episodes on some of, maybe not all, but some of those podcast aggregators allow you to do that. It helps us out when you do. That information, as well as ways to contact us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. Our phone number is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're on twitter.com, at showbizsandbox is our handle. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox. All of this information, as well as links to all of the stories we've talked about on today's episode, can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. It's almost time for their album to come out. Their new hit single, Mother Nature, is out already. And the album is called Loss of Life, February 23rd. Get ready for it. They have a website, MGMT, that is. And of course, their website is whoismgmt.com. Michael Giltz is a website, and every week, it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This week, it's I'll see you on the radio.com. Oh. That's a Charles uh, Osgood sign-off. Yes, and the kind of funny, I'll see you on the right. Yeah, so, yeah uh, I get it. Yeah, well, if you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry on that particular website, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his work is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. <laughs> Happy birthday to you.
Have you been singing this whole time? Yeah, yes, I have been. Happy birthday, man. I love you.